You're listening to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast by Nori, the world's first carbon removal marketplace. Here are your hosts, Ross Kenyon and Christoph Jospin. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change Podcast with Nori. I am Ross Kenyon here with Christoph Jospe, no producer Paul. We left him in Seattle because we came to Indianapolis for the National No Tillage Conference. It has been fun. Uh, we've been hanging out with farmers and uh, people who work with farmers. feel a tiny bit out of my element, but been learning a ton. Is that how you feel? It's It's been a delight. I mean, it's the 27th annual National No-Tiller Conference. And this some morning, of people have been doing it forever. Yeah, they were handing out different pins and plaques for people who've been here for 25 years. So if that's any indication of the commitment that people have to this space, I think it's pretty impressive. They're very passionate about it. I know farmers are are known for having strong opinions about the way they do things. And, and this is not an exception here. I think day one, Ross and I go down there and we clearly did not get the dress code memo. <laughs> and, and I'm kind of even surprised when people are like, are you a farmer? How long have you been no-tilling? Like, are you just saying that to be nice to me? We got that, that vest on. I think it I think it fits in pretty well. I, I think Ross, my blazer was out of place, though. <laughs> Look like a big city slicker. Thank you for sending me an article this morning, Ross. Man's fun socks do not correlate with his personality. For those who know me and if you're listening, I generally only wear fun socks. Maybe it's to make up for my deficient personality. Uh, that's, you're kind of a jerk there, though, for right. saying that. Is this you preparing to, to get me back? Yeah, that was a reductress <laughs> article I saw this morning. It reminded me of you. Yeah, well, I think I was listening to a podcast. There was like five minutes of banter, and it just got excruciatingly long. And it's like, oh, I'll get to the episode already. Like, the one what? we got scolded for the worst was the the one we talked about fish for a couple of minutes at yeah, the beginning. They did not appreciate that. The rest of the team said, okay, enough with the fish. We don't, we don't need it. Okay. And now this is a meta <laughs> conversation about that. It's it, also too long. Well, I think we are allowed to do that because we have a guest on here who's actually listened to every podcast episode, which is always jarring when you meet someone and it's, they're like, I know you. It's like, how? That's like 40, 40 hours of listening to us ramble. Yeah. It's a lot of long commutes. Yeah. It, it is. Well, you heard his voice. I first got to meet this fine gentleman, Ryan Anderson, who is strategy lead at the Delta Institute. I met him in May of twenty. 18 at the Carbon Farming Innovation Network. And I think one of the first things he said to me is like, I heard about Reversa Palooza. It's like, oh, it sticks. Really smart people who know something about carbon markets and creating payments to accelerate reversing climate change know about Reversa Palooza. Cool. It's working. The movement's happening. And it left me with the impression that Ryan is an incredibly smart guy, very knowledgeable on many different sides. I would even, for those who've listened to the podcast many times and know our colleague Alden Donnelly, I'd say Ryan sort of fits the shoes of a mini Alden. Um, <laughs> that's a compliment. We like to flatter our guests, but that's because he is an economist who knows a whole lot about a whole lot more that has to do with farming and climate change, the various dynamics that go into that. We love economists. Sometimes economists just get stuck in the clouds with thinking about models and theories um, and don't always think about what are the practical realities? What are the things that need to happen in order for these market incentives to work? Ryan is a good guy with a good head on his shoulders. So we'll probably stop with the flattery and pass it over to you. You could now flatter us in return. <laughs> uh -huh. We'll exchange. Yes. You can comment on my colorful socks if you'd like. <laughs> but They are very nice. 
<laughs> it's true because I don't own boring socks. I just wanted to kind of pass that. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen you wear normal socks. No, but Ryan, what is your story? How did you get here? You know the drill. Yeah, that's right. And uh, Christoph and Ross, first I'll say thanks so much for having me on the pod. You know, I feel like I'm one of those, you know, the long time listener, first time caller kind of scenarios, right? But I really appreciate what you guys are doing on the podcast and how you're using it as a tool to really keep the conversation going. Because one of the things that I've found in my work is that, you know, climate change, while many of us, especially like I work in, you know, the environmental NGO nonprofit world, we just need to keep talking about climate change. It's not just about these extreme stories of, you know, the skeptics or, or you know, deniers as some call them or some of these fanatical, you know, the world is ending, climate is collapsing stories. We just have to make it an everyday subject about how we're wrestling with the issues in our economy, in our society, embedding it into our cultures and conversations. So that's, you know, kind of an opening statement there. But to get to my story of kind of how I got to be on the Reversing Climate Change podcast is that, you know, I grew up in the suburbs outside uh, Chicago, so born and raised in Illinois. And I was a little bit of an outsider kind of growing up and just, you know, read a lot, played a lot of video games, SimCity and things like that. And, you know, didn't really know where I fit in the world, but I grew up in a household where my dad worked in financial futures in the commodity markets. And so I always had this interest in markets and innovative products. Uh, Chicago is known or I think was known, maybe it's less so now because of New York and London, other financial centers around the world. But it really in the 70s when my dad was working in the business, that's when like futures contracts for farmers really became a thing. Like the Chicago Board of Trade, you know, taking delivery on anything from corn to pork bellies to wheat. And you had futures contracts, options, derivatives, all these different things. And Chicago was a hub for that activity. So I kind of grew up steeped in that environment, always very interested in it, but not really knowing where to plug in. And so when I went to school, undergrad as a finance major in Chicago, I wasn't really satisfied with the curriculum. And so I kept pushing my professors who I still stay in contact with a number of them and I decided to uh, propose my senior year an independent study in ecological economics. I had come across the work of Herman Daly, the co-founder of ecological economics as a field. Uh, he's an American economist uh, and in the late 80s started this field. And then I kind of one thing led to another and my econ professor at the time said, all right, here's a new textbook. Let's read it. And I discovered that there were all these sort of environmental policy solutions that previously were not on my radar at all as just an undergrad business major. And that's actually where I learned about the concept of cap and trade and alternative mechanisms to address climate change. And so I became very focused on that through the lens of ecological economics. And in my senior year, I applied to, at the time, the only master's program in the world in the field at University of Leeds in England. And so I went over to the UK for a year and I was the only American in the school, not the whole university, but the school. And I focused on US climate policy. And my thesis was about how to design a cap and trade program in the US. So that's how I came to know the Chicago Climate Exchange, which we'll get into later. And then eventually, a few months later, after returning back to the States, met 
folks at the Delta Institute, and I've been there ever since, since 2007. Are you willing to let me ask questions about ecological economics? Are you asking me, Ross? Sure. <laughs> you have, you have I don't my know, permission. I don't know how strict you are with the way that you envision this going, but what is it as a discipline and what, what separates it from economics? Is it uh, an alternative to uh, like neoclassical economics or is it a part of it, but there's just, they're just including new information inside of those models? How does right. it work? Well, first, it's actually not a discipline. It's a transdiscipline. Uh-huh. So it's, you know, fancy language, right, in, in our postmodernist times, but it's essentially the fusing of ecology and economy. So if you go back in the Greek, oikos, that's home, and nomia is the management or care of that home. And so economics itself should actually be interpreted, in my view, as care and management or stewardship of our home. So that picks up on you know themes that authors like Wendell Berry have have written about for years. You know, you have Pope Francis writing the encyclical on the care of our common home. So that to me is actually what it's about. It's grounded in an ecological reality that the economy is embedded within society, which is part of a planetary system, right, at the broadest sense. And so that has implications for how we live with and among nature and other species, and for how we should organize our societies, run our economy. So it's it's an embedded, complex view of natural systems and human systems uh, coupled together. And so does that get in a little bit to some of the ecosystem service benefits and trying to assign monetary value to these things, which don't usually have a monetary value, but they present a real important function in the way that we go about our lives. Right. And also when you're talking about the financialization of various assets like that, I would think some of the people you named might think that's an inappropriate way to view something like that. Right. So that's actually been a very longstanding debate within the field of ecological economics. So the other co-founders, so there's Herman Daly, and he worked at the World Bank and you know has had a, a number of interesting positions over the years. The other co-founder, also an American, uh, is Bob Costanza. And you may be familiar with him, but he wrote a very famous paper in 1997 that was published in the journal Nature about the total value of the world's ecosystem services. And at the time, they've updated the study since, but it was at least equivalent to world GDP. So they kind of put that out there as a new concept for people to look at what if not to just that there's exchange value and turning it, you know, turning trees, cut them all down and turn it into dollars. That's sort of the reductionist interpretation or argument about that. That wasn't Costanza and that team's intent. They were trying to say, this is not currently, these ecosystem services are not on our balance sheets, you know, for businesses, for governments, communities. And so we need to account for this. We need to have expanded accounts so that we can be better stewards of these resources. I buy that. I, I guess sometimes it gets confusing. I mean, yesterday I was at a talk and it was quite fascinating and learned all about earthworms and kind of coming from the philosophy, you can't manage what you can't measure. And it's probably quite difficult to measure the total amount of earthworms, but they clearly play this incredibly important function of 
restoring topsoil, um, improving the health of the soil, making the soils living, literally, um, doing all these really good things for the ecosystem. But at some point, are we going to see just measurement fatigue where, (laughs) okay, we know that's good and it's a good proxy to have earthworms there. Um, I mean, you've been listening to the podcast, so you know how we're going about it. And we're not necessarily going to be asking people for their earthworm count, but we know it's really important. So I guess it's kind of like, where where do you draw the line? Like, if you look at Wendell Berry, he would love for much smaller farms and people to using a horse pulling a plow. And that is an important way, this sort of feeling that you get as a human being mm-hmm. without using machinery, which is mm-hmm. a really important ecosystem service or this this ecosphere that we're part of but but we can't really measure that can we or what's the gray area how do you draw the line ryan right and i know that in a recent episode with charles massey you did talk about you know kind of the industrial mind versus like the emergent mind right so that's that's one way of thinking about it so with valuing ecosystem services and the way that it's been approached in ecological economics there have been some some thinkers. That, so a lot of the debate, uh, to get back to your question, Ross, is kind of between sort of the American ecological economists and practitioners in the field and uh, European, which those institutions and researchers tend to look at things more in a pluralist sense, which is where I was influenced having gone to school there. And they say, okay, that's one, as long as we approach these valuation studies as one of, with financial or or monetized value being one among many, then we're not going to lose, you know, we're not going to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, and maybe quite literally. So there are social values, cultural values, aesthetic values. So as long as those are also being accounted for and it doesn't necessarily have to be monetary in order for it to be uh, valued. So that's another approach or or contribution that the field has made over the years is that it's not just about reducing it to a dollar value. Uh, I think that's actually where there's a bit of difference between ecological economists and environmental economists. And we don't need to get into the semantics of how they're actually different. But generally, environmental economists are sort of cut from the cloth of like the neoclassicals and ecological economists are saying there are parts of that field that we really respect, like looking at how to take externalities, whether they're positive or negative, seriously, but also realizing that markets themselves are only one instrument among several different ways of addressing complex social and ecological challenges. So we see that, you know, to run a sustainable, fair, and just economy, there are multiple ways of of getting to those goals beyond just, for instance, getting prices right. It's getting into culture. It's getting into uh, behavior and and so forth. And and I know I, I Chris F. I didn't really get into the part no, no, about no. Barry, but I I think that the that the same sort of line applies where you know, and I've I've read enough of Barry's work to know that he would be very skeptical of a study that's saying you know his his field, his hillside, his rocky hillsides are the water quality is worth so many dollars per acre. Cause he would say, you can't, you can't do that. So I respect, you know, arguments like that. It's just when we're talking about issues like reversing climate change and trying to do that at the speed and scale necessary, there's also a role for market instruments and incentives to play to help us get to those same objectives. Yeah. I have a friend who who works in, I think she has like ecosystem 
uh, services banks and and uh, like endangered species banks and that sort of thing. Those trading those types of assets. And um, I was talking to another friend of mine. It was she was being very critical of that approach. And I think I think it's a fair criticism of financializing ecosystem services because if you're there's this holistic system, right? And you've isolated one single variable and you're saying, let's maximize this variable. And for every increase, we're able to uh, sell that and market that. And I think you can end up with too much of a certain variable inside of a complex system. And sometimes those incentives don't actually make sense. There's there's a point at which markets being introduced to this space may actually confuse matters inside of a complex system. Mm-hmm. This is a classic criticism, yes? Right, yeah. All that's to say, we're building a market and we think about these things. And I think, I think mar- what we're doing is different. Yeah, abso- yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of markets are a incredible way for humans to cooperate. And you mentioned Chicago and the Chicago Climate Exchange and the influence that Chicago has. As a New Yorker, I have to push back and still say New York is still the capital of the world and the best in everything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't, why, why, why punch down like that? I love, no, I love Chicago right. a lot too, but <laughs> Chicago always strikes like me you, as well. You, you, me you live in Seattle now, right? Yeah, we live in Seattle. Hey now, Seattle I didn't get to Seattle can't get I was building it up to beat it down, but okay, New York, I still love you, but you're bringing me down. Um, <laughs> Where was I going with that? Well, okay, so here's where I was going. Well, let's define some terms. You talked about derivatives, futures, commodities. You can just sort of rapid fire define what those even mean. Boy, uh, they're, yeah. I, I have to say my finance, uh, you know, my undergrad textbooks have been collecting a little bit of dust uh, lately <laughs> that hasn't been at the top of my reading queue. Oh, so we're just throwing words around but, to sound smart, are we, Ryan? <laughs> you sound very smart, though. I will confirm. I, I, I know my limits, too. But essentially, a derivative is is just that. It's if you have an asset or something that you can put on a balance sheet, like a mortgage, a derivative would be a contract that exchanges some value or assigns, let's say it puts it in a risk pool or something. So that's a derivative of a mortgage would be something like a mortgage-backed security, which, you know, in the in the Great Recession 10 years ago, they obviously got a very bad rap, their credit default swaps. So those are sort of what I think a lot of people would argue are are bad or or questionable derivatives. But actually, none other than Richard Sander, who uh, co-founded the Chicago Climate Exchange, wrote a book uh, a few years ago called Good Derivatives. And so what he tried to do was essentially set the record straight and say, there are several kinds. So don't just throw all derivatives out with the ones that you've heard about you know, in mainstream media. So that's a roundabout way of getting to your answer. But essentially, there are different classes, but derivatives include you know, there are futures contracts, there are options contracts. And what I understand of what Nori is trying to do, you know, we were talking at the the conference earlier about sort of having that future, you know, you and Alden can explain that much better than than I can. So maybe we can go into that. But that's essentially a futures contract. If you have a, a specific quantity and a specific price that you negotiate between two or more parties in the future, that literally is a futures contract. Well, there's some key differences that we're yeah. persnickety about because it's a forward and not uh, a future. But right. they're, forward purchase. Yeah. yeah. They're related. And I wonder if it goes beyond the bounds of the podcast. Are you bored, listeners? Do you want to hear more about this? Also, we should break down exactly what a derivative is. I think a little bit more. I think when... So if you're trading a derivative of a mortgage, you're not actually trading the mortgage. Right. 
it derives from the mortgage. It's like right. on top of it. And and that's why in the financial economy, you see that the notional value, as it's called, of what's transacted is several times greater. It's it's in the trillions, you know, that's exchanged. And that's a number that you can't that there literally are not enough assets or even currency in the world for all of that to be accounted for. And so there's a lot of notional value and speculation related to those things. But I mean, I'd recommend folks who are interested in the subject to check out uh, Sanders' book so that you can get that from you know a financial economist from his perspective. Because that's that's not my background, but uh, it's something that you know. Again, I said I was kind of steeped in that world growing up, but I wasn't actually really in it. And then also yeah. for, we should do this too for commodities. You're talking about assets that are are fungible with one another. Like one one bushel of corn is you know given a certain grade, right? Is right. is interchangeable with any other, right? So like the Chicago Board of Trade, you know, they helped standardize the contract. I think it did happen in Chicago in the late 1800s, early 1900s for like yellow number two. So it's so many pounds per bushel. You know, it meets or like for oats, it meets a certain test weight, and so it it standardized it so that a farmer who would show up with a grain wagon for delivery, it's like, well, if you don't meet these criteria for how many pounds of grain are in what we standardize as a unit of measurement of a bushel, then you're not going to get the price that you're expecting. Or maybe if it's superior quality, then that's a different tier. So it's kind of a grading scheme. This is all all really helpful. I think yeah. one of the persnickety distinctions that we think about at correct me if I'm wrong, Ross, when it comes to forwards and futures, is that a future contract can be flipped multiple times to that future date. So I might own a future, I sell my future to Ross, and it gets flipped, flipped, flipped. Whereas a forwards contract bilaterally, contractually obliges two parties that must settle at that date in the future. I think it typically settles in the underlying asset too. You can't just buy another contract to offset a, a forward. You have to accept delivery and provide delivery. So, right. listeners, you've now got the foundation you need so we can start talking about the Chicago Climate Exchange. And I do admit that Chicago does does deserve this credit, and it is quite interesting to think about the Chicago Board of Exchange. But, Ryan, you were kind of there at the beginning with the Chicago Climate Exchange. You also talked about how this was a cap-and-trade market, which is slightly different to what Nori is doing. We've seen existing cap-and-trade markets, but... I, We've talked about those in previous podcasts. We can link to some where we brought those up, but that effectively has a cap which gets squeezed over time whereby emitters need to reduce their emissions. But it's quite interesting even to be talking to people here at this conference. They were like, oh, you guys are the carbon guys. There's some people who are trying to do that. I think around 10 or 15 years ago, I was like, yep, those are Chicago Climate Exchange. So it's nice to be back at it again, talking to farmers, thinking about ways that they can monetize the carbon. But Ryan, so you were in this amazing spot where you were the only American at a British university um, getting a really cool degree that was kind of like exactly about what this market was setting up. And you brought up the Delta Institute. We didn't entirely go into the Delta Institute and what they do and their role. So can you paint a little picture about how the Chicago Climate Exchange got set up and Delta's role in uh, incubating and driving this market and how it all worked? Yeah. Again, a lot to unpack there, but... So I wasn't quite there in the beginning. The the Chicago Climate Exchange, or you know CCX for short, was started in late 2003 on the idea that the co-founders Richard Sander and Michael Walsh had as two economists who had a lot of experience in financial exchanges and creating 
you know, innovative products and, and commodity markets and so forth, they saw what was coming in terms of a regulated future for carbon emissions, for greenhouse gas emissions. And they said, we believe that there's a role for financial markets to play. And we also believe that we can get sort of a, a voluntary yet regulatory, meaning that there were compliance measures. Once, you, once a company or a member opted into their voluntary system, they were actually obligated to fall within the capped emissions and the declining baseline for the membership overall. And so on that premise, they went out much like you're doing now to talk with potential buyers and said, we think that this is the future. Would you join us in this program so that we can learn together and create something of a policy laboratory without policy itself? So it was a purely voluntary effort, but it was unique in the world at the time, and I think still is, as, as a model for how people can voluntarily come together and cooperate to you know address address those challenges. And what ended up happening is uh, in terms of Delta getting involved and, and me getting involved is within about two years of the program launching in two, 2003, there were a class of members within the exchange, the CCX, called aggregators. And they created, so offsets were part of the program, of the cap and trade program to help member companies like Ford and DuPont and IBM, there were over 400 members in the exchange at its peak. The baseline of their emissions was, you know, equivalent or surpassing many large countries. So they had, you know, many millions of tons that were obligated or or accounted for from a mixture of states and corporations and universities and startups and, you know, food processors and so forth. So it was a very diverse membership. And there were a number of large emitters or industrial emitters and utility com power companies in particular who said, you know, we want to make sure that we have mechanisms available to us to contain costs. So part of designing a cap and trade program is trying to figure out how you can bring in supplemental reductions that are outside the cap, such as from agriculture and forestry, and bring them in to potentially contain costs for members. Uh, because generally, it's cheaper for a farmer or a forest owner to reduce you know, a marginal ton or sequester it in their soils or trees or grasslands than it is for a power plant to do that. So that's the whole logic of where you know, the trading element of cap and trade comes in. So Delta was brought into a room in late 2005, two years into the exchange's history or, or their development. And it was a group of Illinois stakeholders that include major farm and commodity groups state environmental agency. And they said, you know, we think that there's a role for Illinois agriculture to benefit from participating in this homegrown program. So the long story short is that Delta essentially became the aggregator for the state of Illinois. And so we piloted this and within, I'd say, nine months to a year, we had contacts and contracts for continuous no-till, grass plantings, and tree plantings in almost every county of Illinois. We had relationships with local county soil and water conservation districts, and they were our eyes and ears on the ground because we're a small, Delta is a small nonprofit based in Chicago. Uh, we currently have about 20 staff. Uh, and at the time, we really didn't have a presence in 
sort of rural America. And so the conservation districts really helped us get out there and get our message across. And then we started attending conferences like about no-till, about different conservation practices and systems, and started doing outreach really organically, much in the same way that you know Nori is doing now. So that's, I think, why you're hearing kind of echoes of what you know we were doing 10 or so years ago, because it's like, now there's a new opportunity. It's a different context. It's still voluntary from the farmer's perspective, but they see upside potential and they're very curious about what it might mean in their operation and what they have to do to qualify and potentially get paid. Everyone's been very curious and excited here about what we're doing. The main hurdle that we've run into is the quality of data. Mm-hmm. A lot of farmers have said things like, oh, I wish I, uh, I wish I'd kept better track of that stuff or a lot of it's in my head. But in general, I think it's a pretty warm reception. They're excited about it. I don't. I know the Chicago Climate Exchange didn't work out as planned necessarily, but they don't seem to have lingering uh, beef over it. Yeah, and I can speak to that briefly. I think the challenge that the exchange faced was that it, it was mostly a political one where they had strong support from membership. They had several rounds of verification through you know, and Delta wasn't the only aggregator. So the largest one in terms of acreage was the North Dakota Farmers Union, supported by the National Farmers Union. And they actually, you know, they still run to this day. They have a climate leaders program and they speak about that experience, about how they offered something to their farmer members. Uh, The Iowa Farm Bureau, working on behalf of the American Farm Bureau Federation, had a similar program as well. And so Delta was kind of like a a distant third in terms of our acreage because each of those programs had over a thousand farmers each, I believe, and a million acres or so each. Delta's program, we had about 1,300 contracts in 18 states. Uh, a lot of it was forestry, but total acreage around 400,000. So that's also why I look back on that and say, you know, it was anything but a failure because we were able to get mass involvement and engagement from a sector, a, a community of entrepreneurs, farmers that are normally very difficult to reach and to bring into new programs, especially run by, you know, people in major city or financial centers who are trying to create markets. Because I think a lot of environmental markets, right. Even worse. There's a lot of conflict between uh, those groups. Right. So I think that there's still a lot of kind of fondness or like, Hey, if that's coming back, I want to be part of that. So I don't think that we actually really burned any bridges. I mean, I, I will tell you as the person, you know, who was running the program, the the Delta Carbon program at the time, it was a very sad day when I had to send, you know, over a thousand letters out with my signature to all those farmers and forest owners in, you know, mid-2011 saying- oh, you were the messenger. I was the messenger. But- I didn't get, you know, <laughs> shot down, as they say. Still um, alive. Still right? And And actually, <laughs> I mean, a testament, I think, to the, to the success of the program is that uh, I've been able to maintain relationships with, I don't want to say all or even a majority of them. And of course, there were some people who came back and like, you know, <laughs> you know, had, had not, not choice words, but, you know, it, it was blunt, like, I knew this was going to happen or something, you know, and it, it wasn't the fault of, of anybody in Chicago or whatever. So when I said it was sort of a political failure or that was the ultimate reason, it was because at the time there was a massive uh, climate and energy 
bill that had passed the House, Waxman-Markey, and CCX and other partners and members were doing some lobbying and they they were pushing to have offsets and a strong cap and all of that uh, in there because CCX mostly existed to say, we can do this, we can come together to solve this problem, you know, from multiple sectors, including farmers coming into this. And so we have experience and lessons learned to share with people in Congress. And then when it went to the Senate, it didn't go anywhere. I don't think it, it was the bill. The bill was introduced, but it was never brought to the floor. Was this for these assets that were being traded to be treated as alternate uh, compliance uh, mechanisms under it, cap and trade, something like yeah. that? It wasn't even so much about like the early action and if CCX credits would be fungible in a national, like a, a federal program. It was more that just all the wind was taken out of the sails. And so what happened, this was in you know late 2010, 2009 and 10, a lot of the members of CCX started kind of pulling back and saying, well, if Congress isn't going to take action, then we can't continue this indefinitely. And, and I don't blame any of them for that. And so that's why I think there's still kind of some pent up demand because that was 10 years ago. Waxman-Markey passed in 2008, 2009. And you know now it feels like there's momentum building again after the Paris Agreement, after you see the US Climate Alliance forming and more governors that are that are doing things around the country acknowledging the role of like the 4 per 1000 initiative and related things that are happening in the US there's more momentum building again and so i think that's why now is a really good time you know for nori to launch enter into that conversation and why you're hearing things like at this conference you know that people are still interested cuz that opportunity was there for them and it was sort of taken away from their perspective but they're still on their land trying to do the right thing and believe that incentives will help them improve their system over time. What should we learn from the Chicago Climate Exchange's experience? And I hope it's not the danger of political risk, uh, like regulatory uncertainty is, is one of those things that, I don't know, keeps some people up at Nori up late at night. Would you agree with that? I mean, there are things that we can't predict in the way that digital assets might be treated or new legislation that could come out that could uh, front run some of what we're trying to do or establish a policy that sort of ossifies the way that carbon removal happens in the future that disadvantages us. There, are, Those are real concerns. Yeah, I think that, I think that there's there's a lot that we can learn. And of course, we don't want to reinvent the wheel. And it's very wise for us to look about at all of the various pieces. I mean, to get very business school speaky, it's distribution model to make the two-sided marketplace work, right? Who are all the pieces that are maybe the aggregators or the cooperators that get people to come together to agree to something? There's just so much that we can learn. I think one of the challenges that understood also about the Chicago Climate Exchange, which we're extremely dogmatic about at Nori, is that a ton of CO2 removed is not the same as a ton of CO2 avoided. And the Chicago Climate Exchange treated in very much the same way the offsets kind of look at avoiding a ton of CO2 and removing a ton of CO2 is the same, is that you had these things trading all in the market. And so potentially we're able to avoid that by saying we're only focused on removal because guess what? You know, while humans quibble about ways to address climate change, the atmosphere is doing a really good job just taking in more CO2 and warming the planet even more. Um, news went out last 
week or something. I don't know. Not well, it'll be old news by now, but that emissions in the US actually went up between three and four percent. I forget the exact right, number. Right. So come on, world. We got we got work ahead of us. And so at least from the Norris building a carbon removal market only, that's a distinction between the Chicago Climate Exchange. But to Ross's question, which I think is a really important one, just what can we learn? Yeah. I mean, first, I guess, to quickly respond to like the avoided versus removed emission. Be we- careful. You can get excommunicated for this. <laughs> uh, no, I th- they do that in Chicago, right? <laughs> no, no. It's 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 a friendly town, I, I think. You know, it's not quite the the New York, you know, get out of my way sort of mentality, right? That's a myth. I know, I know, right? <laughs> uh, anyway, I think within the CCX system, you're you're right about sort of the counterfactuals and and the tricky language you can get into when you're talking about avoided emissions in the future. What CCX is was doing with sequestration those were removals. It's just what happened on the other side of the transaction is that it was used in lieu of an emission reduction from a member company that was obligated to meet, you know, their emissions allowance, their their cap, right? So it was still a reduction. It's just what happened is that the net effect was neutral. Whereas what Nori is doing is trying to pay farmers purely for removal and then on the other side of the transaction, it's not like surrendered for compliance. And I know that there's more semantic differences. You could talk about negating versus offsetting and so forth, yeah. which I just done in other episodes. Just to be semantic, and I had to yell at Ross, <laughs> I think yesterday, Nori does not pay farmers. Nori enables payment yes. to farmers. Sorry. We're, we're just a building market infrastructure. I think yeah. Christoph's imagining this differently than I remember it. <laughs> but okay. Yeah. So what what we can learn from the Chicago Climate Exchange, I think, is that you you have to get started. You can't just write a complex methodology and hope that the supply will show up or the buyers will show up. You have to test these things. You have to make them accessible to farmers. The user experience, which I think you guys are doing very well um, from what I've seen, is very important to making it simple and streamlined and minimize the transaction cost and the barriers to participation as much as possible. And CCX, much to their credit, did figure that out. They also took some some heat for how they handled you know, baseline creation and additionality and permanence with length of contract and so forth. You know, it was five years for no-till instead of a hundred years like it is in California. And people would say, well, that's not permanence. We're not going to get into that today, but I think CCX still stands as one of the most effective models of showing us how you can get participation in the farming and forestry communities, you know, at a significant scale relatively quickly. Yeah, that's that's great. So moving us along, you had this great experience at Delta with the Chicago Climate Exchange, you definitely got payment for ecosystem services in the head and thinking about different models that basically enable environmental benefits. Yeah, I saw you last night hanging, talking about managing nutrients in mm-hmm. Chesapeake Bay. Seemingly, you can hang in that too. It seems, yeah, it's all we called connected. a mini Alden. <laughs> yeah, very, very mini Alden. Yeah, seemingly knows everything about that. Yeah. Uh, There's some interesting papers that have come out recently that Delta has published. Um, Let's see, what should we talk about first? 
Well, I think I should say something for a second about who Delta Institute is and what our work is. Oh, yeah. Because uh, I've, I've kind of skirted around it, right? It's not the airline? No, no. That's why, you know... I should say Delta Institute so that if I just say Delta, you might be thinking of, of other uh, companies or organizations. Anyway, so our mission as an organization is to collaborate with communities across the Midwest and help them solve uh, complex environmental challenges and doing that in tandem with you know economic development and uh, social equity. So we take an integrated approach to challenges ranging from we have uh, six programmatic initiatives, uh, waste reduction, sustainable buildings, resilient communities, land stewardship, where most of our carbon work and water quality trading and modeling work has been housed, regenerative food systems, and green infrastructure. So those six initiatives, you know, for 20-some for 20, 20 people, that's a big portfolio. And the Midwest is a large geography. So we really have our work cut out for us. And so the way that we get it done is through partnership. So we're always looking for people to uh, collaborate with, even if they're outside of the region. So one example, which you've alluded to, is you know the report that we released with USDA Conservation Innovation Grant Funding, working with Farmland LP, which is based out in California and Oregon, an impact investment fund for farmland and converting it from conventional to organic and regenerative practices and systems, and Earth Economics, which is based in uh, Washington State. So that was outside the Midwest geography, but we found that to be strategically important because we were trying to figure out how do you value this on sort of a self-contained, a microcosm, if you will, of uh, farmland where you have lots of data over the years and a motivation by the farm management staff to figure out what the balance sheet looks like from an ecosystem service perspective. And so we were able to quantify that and show that in addition to the financial returns of the fund, there were also all these ecological returns that had dollar equivalent values, but we also noted things about improvements in biodiversity, pollinator habitat, and so forth that are more of the aesthetic and you know, other values that I was talking about earlier with ecosystem services. So that's really part and parcel of what we're trying to do at Delta Institute is to figure out those ways to pilot innovative ideas and help with partnerships, take them to scale and potentially even turn them into uh, social enterprises or, or businesses so that they can reach the mainstream. That is a tall order, and we always love small, committed organizations that punch way above their weight. It certainly sounds like Delta is one of them. Are you ever in board meetings that are like, what's the Delta here? Did that ever happen? <laughs> you guys get meta on that level? Yeah, no, maybe not meta like you did at the outset of this conversation, but yeah, we've heard that. So to go back to this report, I think, you know, it's a very hot button topic for impact investors to say, all right, I, I want to put my money to doing the right thing. I want to see the returns. How do I estimate those returns? How do I look at these various ecological benefits that might happen when we're incentivizing land management. Everyone is thinking about it. I think Farmland LP has quite an interesting model because they're essentially able to buy up distressed land um, 
which pretty straightforward, distressed land, like we want to make that better. And you can track all, all that. Uh, I thought it was quite interesting that the comet model is involved somehow mm -hmm. in this calculation. Really cool because we're using that same data model um, for our first methodology. So it's really nice to say, hey, guys, like we're all on the same team and want to improve this model by feeding it more data. And the more that the world can kind of beat to the same drum in some of the things that we'd like to see improved, the more everyone benefits. So I want to take this a little bit, if you were to put yourself in the shoes of an impact investor, or think about an impact investor listening to this, uh, who is trying to say, hey, I've, I've got this money, I want to put it to making the world a better place, I want to see a return on it. Um, how might you advise them to go about thinking to even start addressing this problem? Well, let me let me add in here real quick as an addendum to this. I've had friends that worked for a long time at nonprofits. And mm -hmm. the problem of, of measuring your outcomes is is one of the hardest things as far as I'm aware. And there's a thing called, I believe it's called Goodhart's Law. And it's like, basically, when you start measuring something, people start maximizing that thing alone. Mm -hmm. So like, it isn't like how many student leaders you get involved. It's how many people you can pack into a conference independently of whether or not those actually convert into people that you need to be in the organization for a long time. I'm sure you see stuff like that. And Impact investing too. It works through proxies now, like ESG. Right. It's like I don't know. Environmental it, social governance. There yes. we go. <laughs> That's right. I deserve uh, that. <laughs> yeah, and and I normally speak in acronyms, so this has been a little bit of a challenge for you've me. Been, today, you've been well behaved. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I you know I've I've been able to practice and internalize it from listening to. You know, I almost the, don't the like episodes. it. You already, you already know where we're going to go. What yeah. we're doing. <laughs> no, I don't. It's, this is not like Inception here or anything <laughs> like that. Anyway, so on on the impact investor question, you know, we've worked with a number of them and including uh, advisory firms. And actually, out of the Farmland LP report, they did start getting some requests from you know family offices and others. You'd have to have you know Craig Wishner, the the co-founder and and director of Farmland LP, on to to speak to the details of that. But suffice it to say, I think that there's interest in investing in something real, in farmland, forest land, you know, natural systems, ecosystems, landscapes. That's a real asset to invest in. And for a long time, I think the relationship has started to break down a little bit lately with drops in commodity prices and so forth, the, their longer term trends. But uh, farmland has been something of a hedge against the rest of the market, meaning that if stocks, you know, equities, bonds are up, farmland might return lower, but then it could flip so that when stocks and equities and other asset classes are down, farmland stays stable because, you know, the old adage is we're not making any more of it, right? So it's it's a fundamentally scarce and I would argue invaluable resource. It's so valuable, you can't put a price on it. But I think there's a role for impact investors to support people, especially when we're talking about regenerative agriculture and soil health management systems, to, you know, to deploy their capital in ways that create real value on the landscape and also a financial return. Now, sometimes that's an, that's an exchange for a longer ROI, uh, return on investment, you know, horizon, or maybe a below market or slightly lower uh, return, financial return on your investment. But it's a way of diversifying your portfolio as well. So I think that the argument to make to impact investors or advisors is that this is a space that has a lot of potential, but it there's not currently enough capital 
deployed in it and focused on how do we make these continuous improvements in soil health, which is a real asset. And that's actually the foundation of our entire economy is the health of our land. You sound like a physiocrat now. Is that taking? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, let's get into it. Henry George and Kesney. No, <laughs> going even farther back, we're going to France. Yeah, 18th century. Yeah. Okay. Well, what else? We're we're kind of running up near the the border of how long we like to keep it. Though um, I'm sure we're going to speak many more hours today. Um, is there anything we should close with? Anything else that you guys want to say? Let me rephrase that question, Ryan. Take us take us home. Like what? excites you about where you see this place going what like put a crystal ball in your hands what do you want to see what's the future that you want to manifest here i would like to see with the pilot nori is launching for there to be networks or nodes across the country and north america and eventually the world give this some consideration and to realize that no matter where they are on the spectrum of their conservation systems, there's a place for them to join and potentially to benefit. If you have a little patience and can, you know, think out beyond your next harvest, because we're talking about some multi-year commitments, it's not forever, but the upside I think is potentially significant. And there's not a lot that farmers have to lose, especially in these times where their margins are very thin. There's a lot of there are a lot of challenges out in in the rural landscape of the U.S. right now, and I think that this isn't the only way out by any means. But it's sort of you know a helping hand or a boost that can maybe help make the difference to you know keep somebody on the land and continue farming you know the way they they see fit and that benefits the land. So I think that there's a lot of potential for you know, Nori to be part of that conversation. It won't be the only the only one out there. And there's a lot of work that's been done by other groups over time to also account for. Uh, but I think now is the time to go back out there into the community and introduce this concept and see what kind of traction you get and uptake. And hopefully that makes a difference in terms of uh, bending the curve on on emissions. Great. Well, thanks for being here and for listening to the entire show. You're like a scholar of Christoph and I's inane <laughs> <laughs> comments now. Uh, yeah, referencing things that we once said offhand <laughs> like a year ago. Uh, no, it's been fun. Thanks for being here and yeah. uh, being a Nori supporter. If you're listening, you like what we do, please give us a good review in your app, share our content, get this podcast out there into the hands of people. And uh, thanks for being here. And yeah. if you're a first-time listener, welcome on board. It's yeah. nice to have you. Please subscribe. <laughs> yes, also that. Okay, bye-bye for now. <laughs>